My name is Justin Gottlieb. I'm one of the pastors here at Seven Mile Road. It's such a joy to get to be here with you this morning uh, and to get to open up the Bible with you this morning and, and learn from it and to be shaped by it and, and to seek to have God uh, bring about conformity to his will with you. So thank you uh, for being here. Thank you for, uh, for praying that this would be a profitable time. Um, as you may or may not have, but you probably have learned or heard, either from your parents or from Linus, from Peanuts, this is the only time I'll mention any form of cartoon or comic in a sermon, so relish this. Religion and politics are not to be discussed with other people. In fact, Linus added that discussion of the great pumpkin is off limits too, but I'm going to leave that decision to you. Today I'm going to ignore all of that wisdom regarding, regarding public talk about politics and instead preach to you from Esther chapter 10 verses 1 and 3. This is a text that God has given his people, uh, I believe, to inform our view of politicians, their purpose, and what successful governance might look like. So I'm going to tell you up front a couple things that I think we'll see in the text and then we'll, we'll, be, we'll begin working downhill towards that. So first off, this text is going to teach us that politicians can be godly and that politicians can serve their constituents well. Because of our experiences in witnessing politician after politician fall to immorality, to bribery, and to selfish gain, gain, this may or may not seem possible to you. But the scriptures don't seem to see a divide, a necessary divide, between godliness and political activity. I think we're going to see that today in this text. Secondly, we're going to see that politicians can serve their constituents well and can be godly in a political system that is not even close to a biblical ideal. All right, that's really helpful for any government that's non uh, that's non-theocratic, that's non-Bible-based. Uh, you know, so these are two big questions we're going to get at. Can politicians be godly? And can politicians be godly and serve well in a government that isn't the biblical ideal? See, all of the legislative stars don't have to be aligned in order for politicians to serve their people well. I think that's what the Bible will show us today. See, the Jews in the book of Esther are far from living in a biblical, ideal, um, governed wholly by the word of God type community. All right? But Mordecai, we'll find, governs well and serves his people well. Now this week as I've been preparing for this, I began to wonder how many times, uh, how many times first time representatives arrive in Washington only to realize that's, that same day how hopeless they are to actually change things that are going on inside the beltway. See, I began to wonder how many well-intentioned campaign promises leave their agenda the first week in Washington, not because they don't want them to happen, but because they realize the challenges that they're actually facing. While flying home from from vacation a couple weeks ago, um, I got to watch the British Open on the seatback television in front of me. That's God's grace right there. Direct TV on a plane. Boom. Um, This was exciting to me. Uh, because the British Open's always been my favorite golf tournament. There's something about the tradition and the style of golf 
that's played there that's always appealed to me. I also love the fierceness of these old golf courses. Like, they're just rugged. Like, a lot of times it doesn't even look like... Well, it actually looks a lot of times like they just poured weed killer all over them and said, here, go have fun. And people jump at the opportunity. Um, but one of the fierce features of these, opportun- of these golf courses, these British Open courses, is their deep sand traps. I don't know if you guys have seen them on TV, but if you haven't, I'm about to tell you about them because it's awesome. Um, to build many of these sand traps... They actually dig out the face of the sand trap closest to the green. And they do this so that they can stack layer after layer of sod into these things. It's like, how can we punish these golfers the most? Let's stack sod until they can't see out of them. That's kind of what happens. And, and as they do this, it forms a very deep and intimidating and challenging sand trap. And because of this, there ends up being a lot of situations where players hit their ball in but can't hit their ball out of the sand trap towards the green. And those playing, like these are the best golfers in the world, playing in a tournament of their dreams, and they'll walk into the bunker, survey their options, and go, yep, I'm not hitting this one to the green. How about I just shoot for the fairway? That's going to be my new goal. Maybe my next shot I can hit the green. So, so they just take this all in stride, knowing that this is part of the, the game, part of the British Open. And so they, they adjust their hopes for the next shot and, um, and just start looking for better opportunities next time. Well, while I was watching on the plane, again, I got to watch TV on an airplane. You know how awesome this? Think about this. Um, I saw a player hit into a sand trap and then realized not only that he couldn't hit the ball out of the sand trap towards the green, but that he couldn't hit the ball out of the sand trap towards the fairway. All right, his ball was so close to the stacked sod, it's like here, so close in the, the pins over here, that the fairway wasn't an option. His only play was to hit the ball sideways into the rough. This guy was playing golf at the highest level, but the challenge he faced was simply too much for his ability. So when he surveyed the situation, he saw he had no good options. This is a professional golfer, the biggest tournament in the world. He dreamed of participating in this his whole life. He lines up, takes a swing, and intentionally hits his ball into grass that's this tall. Things were so bad that this was a good idea. This is the epitome of hopeless situation on the golf course. And I think that this is probably very similar to the situation that a lot of our politicians find themselves in. I've worked so hard to get here, but I'm facing unimaginable challenges and don't have any good options. So they readjust their expectations, but in doing so, they move from this God-given goal of governing well to start hitting the ball in the waist-deep rough. And unfortunately, once they get there, it's really, really hard to get out. And so their dreams of good governance rarely make it back towards the green. The book of Esther shows us, however, that politicians can be godly. And they can serve well, even in less than ideal conditions. See, contrary to what we often feel, government is a gift from God. And those who are given to carry it out, politicians are a gift from God for our good. I'm going to say that part again really, really slow. 
and then I'm going to duck. Politicians are a gift from God for our good, for your good. And I expected a brick. Um, The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 13 about this. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. See, everything that we see makes it in our daily lives, in the news, on the Colbert Report, makes it really difficult to see politicians as a gift from God. But that is exactly what they're supposed to be, because that is exactly what government was supposed to be. But the sinful nature that we all have messes everything up, and it messes with our politicians too. And it messes with our government. And if And if this is reality, the one of of a flawed society led by a flawed people that we know, and it is one that causes many of us to be skeptical. It just does. It causes many of us to be skeptical. And so it makes it really, really difficult for us to see government serving people well. See, and so if we know about all the, the flawed nature of politics, we can expect that the Jews in Esther's day were even more familiar with that. They knew of a king who overtook their land by force and shuffled them around to other parts of the empire, away from their land, taking their best and brightest to serve him, while completely disorienting the rest so that they might not cause him any trouble down the road. See, in this series from the book of Esther, we've seen the following things happen. This is just a quick rundown of political matters. We've seen politicians attempt to sway others by pageantry and opulence. We've seen politicians eager to glorify themselves at the expense of their people. We've seen politicians eager to be honored and angry when that does not happen for them. We've seen politicians leverage power to fulfill their sexual appetites. We've seen politicians who use their power to kill enemies. We've seen politicians who use their power to achieve their own purposes. We've seen politicians who boast in their position. We've seen politicians who hate their opponents. We've seen politicians who hate serving others, the very thing they're called to do. And we've seen politicians who fail to serve their people. So if anyone knew how bad, how selfish, how nasty, and how uncaring politicians can be, it was the Jews of Esther's day. And if anyone had been objectified for the good of the governor, not the government, it was Esther and all the other girls that had been called to the king's harem. If there was anyone who should doubt the goodness of politicians and government, it was Esther and her people in Persia in that time. And, and because that is true for them, and, and to some extent us, it's be, it, it becomes really easy to wonder not only how, but if politicians can really fulfill the purposes God had for them in granting them their office. So can politicians care for people other than themselves? Can they truly work for the good of others and succeed? Can they, by the grace of God, overcome their sin so that they're actually a blessing? 
Is it even possible without shutting down the government and starting over with different people in power for us to have good politicians worried about the people? Is that possible? See, these questions that we have today are are appropriate um, for us to be asking and, and surely appropriate for the Jews in the book of Esther. Because all there was then was King Ahasuerus and his right-hand man, Haman. And everyone else obeyed them or else. See, in fact, as we learned a few weeks ago, approaching the king at all was risking one's life. And that didn't even guarantee you a fair hearing of your question. As you have read and heard throughout this series, the former prime minister, Haman, allowed his pride and discontentment to lead to his downfall, his execution, and the ending of his life. And through all of that, God took a faithful civil servant, one who had served at the king's gate and even foiled an assassination attempt on the king, but who was otherwise seemingly ordinary and made him prime minister. See, Esther 8, verse 1 says this, On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. See, it was actually Esther's influence that led to Mordecai's elevation to this position as as the king's right-hand man. It wasn't because he earned the position in a classic sense. It wasn't because he got voted in, and it wasn't because he had the best degree or the best resume. God made Mordecai the prime minister, and he did it by Esther's influence with the king. And through the chapters that Mordecai is the prime minister, we actually don't have very many details about his work. What we do know is that Mordecai worked effectively so that it was written of him, In in Esther chapter 9, verses 3 and 4. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews. For the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. See, Mordecai was given power, political power, and he stewarded it well. To serve God to serve God's people. And he did that by serving the king. He didn't misuse the power and have it stripped from him as Haman had. Instead, he just he kept working faithfully and kept seeing his power increase and increase over and over again. And, and then we get to the end of the book. Like I said, there's really not a ton about Mordecai governing. But when we get to the end of the book, the last three verses of the book of Esther... If, if you've got a Bible, this is a time to open it up to, to Esther chapter 10. As we get to that, the author of the book of Esther ends the book in much the same way he began the book. So the book started by talking about King Ahasuerus and his provinces. And it's going to end by talking about King Ahasuerus. But there's a difference from how he began, though, in chapter 1 and how he's going to end. See, the writing about the king in chapter 1 was all about King Ahasuerus and the party he was throwing to consolidate power in his kingdom. It made much of King Ahasuerus. But this time, 
It's almost as if the author simply points out King Ahasuerus and makes brief note of the kingdom so that he can talk about Mordecai. I'll read this. Read this with me and then we'll talk about it. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. That's how the book of Esther ends. See, the author points the reader in here when talking about King Ahasuerus, to the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Media and Persia. He points them there for more information. That's not an uncommon thing when they were writing about kings in this day. Um, they would write, they would write, is this not written? And meaning it was written. And go check that out if you want to see more detail about their deeds and accomplishments, their day-to-day operations, the military expeditions, financial statements debit card numbers, all that stuff. That's where you could find that. But in the case of King Ahasuerus, you don't just find a resource recommendation here. You don't just find that for the reader eager to learn more about him before the story moves on to another Persian king. See, that's what you would find a lot of times. But here you also find mention of Mordecai. And you don't just find mention of Mordecai, you find several things about Mordecai. See, the author wants us to see that Mordecai wasn't only the prime minister of Persia. Now, that would have been something. That would have been awesome. We're talking about the most expansive uh, and powerful kingdom in the world at the time. So don't get me wrong. That would have been awesome and impressive for Mordecai. But he was more than that, and the author wants us to see that. See, we're supposed to see that Mordecai took on the status of the king of Israel even when there wasn't necessarily a political Israel. He does this by using biblical language. See, it's not only the king Ahasuerus mentioned in the book of Chronicles. Verse 2 that we just read says, And all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? See, it wasn't only king Ahasuerus that was making this, this book. It was Mordecai too. And this is what gets written about kings, not civil servants. See, Mordecai was more than a second in command to a pagan king. He was the king of his people. See, if you were to read through the book of Kings that's in our Bible, you would note a phrase that follows brief accounts of the kings of Israel. These phrases are used multiple times in the Bible and tell us that that person involved was a king. Here are a couple examples. This is from 1 Kings 14. Now the rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? Here's another. Now the rest of, the, of all the acts of Asa, all his might, and all that he did, and the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? See, so what the author is telling us when he, when he says, when he writes in the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, are they not written in the book of the chronicles? What he's saying is, Mordecai is as one of the great kings of Israel. That's who Mordecai is. Of course, 
This is even more fascinating because Mordecai cannot be the king of Israel because there is no political Israel to be a king of at this time. So he's serving as this prime minister of Persia, but he's much more. That's what we're supposed to understand here. He couldn't actually be king, but he was serving in such a way that he was actually king of God's people in this day. He's ruling as if he's a king of God's people. Even though Israel wasn't living in their own land under their own power, but instead under the rule of a foreign pagan king. See, the situation did not keep Mordecai from ruling and governing and serving well. It didn't keep him from serving the king well, and it didn't keep him from serving his people well. And not only did Mordecai serve God's people well as governor in a non-Jewish state, but the author's also wanting us to see the grandness of his office and the grandness of his service in that, that he puts him in this redemptive historical stream of second-in-commands. You'll see what I mean in a second. Throughout biblical history, there's a number of, of second-chair leaders, of second-in-command type people that have greatly influenced God's people, who have greatly served God's people. And the writer is aligning Mordecai in this stream. Joseph is one. You know, Joseph, Genesis 41. Joseph, who rose from slavery and imprisonment to ride in the second spot in Pharaoh's chariot. Yeah, that happens in Genesis 41 through 43. The one sold into slavery. Um, The one accused of, uh, of attacking and assaulting Potiphar's wife. Then elevated to serve Pharaoh as a second-in-command and who provided for God's people um, a place to flourish and resources to flourish in Egypt. Another is Jonathan, the son of Saul, who saw his father's foolish ways and his father's desire to kill David and help this future king who helped David escape Saul's wrath over and over See, so Mordecai was in that stream. He was one of those people, and the author wants us to see that. Mordecai was was the king of Israel um, when there wasn't a king of Israel. Mordecai was uh, was leading his people as a second-in-command, providing for them in huge, huge ways, even under a foreign and pagan king. And so all of this, by the time we read that and see that, the next verse we begin to expect. See, Mordecai had served well in the circumstances God gave him. And God's people benefited in such a way that the writer can write in this last verse of the book of Esther that Mordecai was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. See, most certainly Mordecai could have had a more idyllic setting, a more godly senior leader, more power, and a number of other advantages. But God did not limit his effectiveness because of these things. He didn't limit him at all. See, instead, Mordecai is to be celebrated for his service to the king. But that's not why he's great among the Jews. See, he's great among the Jews because of the way he serves them. In fact, these verses don't even hint at his role in the reversal around which this whole book of Esther has been centered. See, Mordecai doesn't, we don't get to the end of this book and then celebrate Mordecai 
because of the reversal from annihilation to life for God's people. Instead, this verse gives us the two reasons that he celebrated. First, Mordecai was great because he sought the welfare of the Jews. He sought their welfare. You can hear it, verse 3. He was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. See, it wasn't because of Mordecai's wise handling of a speech, a taxation issue, or parking problems, or anything else surrounding the law. Mordecai was for the Jews. He was for their flourishing. He was for their country. And at the end of the day, regardless of where he landed on a particular issue, the Jews knew Mordecai is for us. He's ours. See, Mordecai served his people well. The Bible tells us right here that he served them well and he was loved because he sought their welfare. And he did so with all of his power and all of his influence. And secondly, this verse tells us, Mordecai was great among the Jews because he spoke peace to all of his people. Again, this isn't anything fancy, bright, or legislatively brilliant. It's not. Mordecai simply spoke peaceably to his people, all of them. See, the previous prime minister had organized war against them and tried to kill a large number of them, organizing genocide and legislating genocide. Mordecai not only did not do that, he spoke in a way that showed he was eager to avoid conflict with them. He spoke in a way that showed he cared about them and loved them. And considering the high esteem that Mordecai is granted in this text, it's quite amazing that it wasn't military triumph or conquest that gained his popularity. That's what we oftentimes see in the biblical narrative. Not here. What we're seeing is that Mordecai, who was a politician, is thought of so highly because he sought the welfare of God's people. And he spoke peace to them while serving them as prime minister in a non-Jewish, non-biblical state. As one commentator writes, Mordecai typifies the possibility of living a creative and rich life in the foreign environment as part of the complex social, political, and economic dynamics of that world and also of remaining a devoted and loyal member of his community of fellow Jews. See, we should hear this story of Mordecai and his service and see the potential for engagement in political and legal professions in our day. See, our government is also not one of gospel centrality and orthodox belief. But God is able to use us, any of us, and any of our children to serve His people really, really well. To seek His people's welfare and to speak peace to all. God's able to do that. See, it's easy in our day to want to withdraw from politics as a voter. And I don't know this because I'm not, I'm not involved in politics that much. But even more, it's got to be easy to want to withdraw as a politician. But instead, we should be begging God for courage and wisdom to engage in the political sphere for the good of his people. It's so easy to step in the sand trap of politics not see any good option. 
no option for moving forward. But we have to have hope that whether or not we can clear the face of that bunker, the face of that sand trap, and reach the green, that God is able to do so with our humble efforts. See, we need not and must not concede that things are awful and either hit it high into the high grass or quit altogether. Our skill is never so poor and the face of the bunker is never so deep, never sacked so high that God cannot use your humble and my humble efforts, holy efforts, to participate in serving your community, state, and country politically. So I would encourage you this morning to be praying that God would raise up godly politicians from within His church to seek the welfare of God's people and speak peace to all people. It would be a great thing if God took this story of Mordecai and gave somebody in here a passion for political service. Be awesome. It would be a great thing if God took this story of Mordecai and gave some of our children a God-sized vision of politics that otherwise they won't have. Wouldn't it be great if one day 30 years from now, one of, one of the little souls sitting downstairs was shaping our nation's policy by walking into the Capitol and saying, how can we seek the welfare of God's people today? How can we do that? So let's pray and work towards that end. Let's raise our little ones up. Let's, let's disciple ourselves to see what God can do even when things look dark. While we should be praying and working hard towards seeing godly politicians raised up to serve the city, the state, the country well going forward, we still know that in the end they're going to let us down. There's still sin in the human heart, mind, and soul. And until sin is extinguished at the return of Christ, no government will be carried out flawlessly. We just know that. Because of that, just as Israel's hope should never have been Mordecai. Our hope should not be in any man, woman, or campaign, but must be in the one greater than Mordecai, the better Mordecai. Our hope must be in another greater second in command, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who joyfully submitted to the Father's will, even when it cost His life on the cross, so that you and I might be brought to God. Our hope must be in Jesus, the one who left his heavenly throne to come to earth, that we may share in his inheritance as sons of God through faith in him. Our hope must be in Jesus, the son who died on the tree under a sign mocking him as the king of the Jews that he might speak peace to the most vile offenders of God. That he might speak peace to you and to me. There's no greater king than Jesus, and there never will be. Jesus rules now and eternally, not from from an earthly throne, but from a heavenly one. He rules from the grandest throne, seeking your welfare, and speaking peace to you today. If that doesn't get you, I don't know what will. He's speaking peace to you today. 
He's inviting you to his table. He's seeking your welfare, your good. Take hold of that good news. Take hold of the gospel. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you have been so good to us. We have no business, no business at all, having the God of the universe who we've offended so much, even today, even this morning, likely even while we're even here, supposed to be gathered to worship. We have no business having you seeking our good and our welfare, but you do it anyway. You do that anyway. Would you give us eyes to see that? Would you give us eyes to see all that you've done? Your sinless life, death, your resurrection. That you did all that to bring us to God. Pray that you would, God. And would you give us a God-sized vision of politics, of political activity, of government. Would you make us holy and humble in pursuing that for the, the glory of your name and the good of your people? I beg that you would do that today, God. Amen.